This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Felix Zuloff. What can I tell you? He is a legendary investor whose career spans back to the late 60s. He has had numerous spectacular calls, uh, very often contrarian and against the grain. They have the unique advantage of not only being um, against the popular voice, but being correct. His long-term track record has been wonderful. He's created uh, an immense amount of wealth for his clients. Uh, In fact, essentially retired from running other people's money to set up a family office to manage uh, his own money. He currently is operating a consulting firm out of Zurich where he's advising all sorts of institutions, governments, high net worth families uh, about the economy, what their what the global intervention by central banks and governments means for future growth, why we need to be aware of the role of China going forward. Um, I have a um, really long term set of gratitude uh, for to Felix. When I first began playing with the idea of uh, these longer form interviews, he was one of the very first people. I reached out to a, a mutual friend, uh, introduced us, and we did a conversation uh, in 2010 that really was uh, the predecessor to Masters in Business. So if if you enjoy these conversations, really, uh, you have Felix to thank. He's the one who, who set me on the path for this. I could talk about his track record and all the other things he's done over his career uh, endlessly, but rather than listen to me continuing to babble, with no further ado, my conversation with Felix Zuloff. My special guest today is Felix Zuloff. He is a legend in the asset management business. He began his career as a trader for Swiss Bank, moved up to research and portfolio management in New York, Zurich, and Paris. In 1977, he joined the Union Bank of Switzerland in Zurich, managing global mutual funds, eventually heading the Institutional Portfolio Management Unit and becoming the global strategist for UBS. He founded his own hedge fund, Zuloff Asset Management, in 1990, which allowed him to independently practice his own investment philosophy. Felix also runs Zuloff Consulting out of Zurich, Switzerland. Uh, I don't even know how much more of your, your background I could read. You've been a member of the Barron's Roundtable for 30 years, have developed just a, a legendary reputation, and you are also one of the people who inspired the idea for Masters in Business when we had an interview way back in 2010. Felix Zuloff, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you very much, Barry. Great to uh, to be get your guest here, and uh, I I like to hear that I inspired you. <laughs> you definitely did. <laughs> so so I I gave that background of of the early career of yours. Um, what motivated you into the investment business? What what drove you in that direction? You know, I was a college dropout actually, and um, my parents uh, requested that I. Uh, uh, learned a solid profession, and that was the profession of a banker at mm-hmm. that time. At that time, it was still a solid profession. 
And um, <laughs> and you had, didn't need a college degree for that. I didn't need a college degree for that. And uh, I went to a bank and worked for a bank as an intern. They educated me. It was very boring. Uh, banking was very boring at that time. And once I uh, went uh, to the investment department, it became lively. You know, uh, some things started to move, and I was interested to see what made things move. And I asked the people there, and uh, I got so many answers, and I figured out very quickly that they had no clue. Uh So I wanted to learn what made those things move. And there were no opinion leaders in Europe at that time. Uh, That was in the late 60s, uh, uh, early 70s. Uh, So I looked for uh, the U.S. because there were some opinion leaders. Mm -hmm. And I read them and I uh, uh, made the decision that I wanted to be able to make those decisions like they and found my opinion on solid research. So this is how it happened. So so give us some of the names of the U.S. opinion leaders that attracted you in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, You know, the one that um, inspired me the most was Bob Farrell. So the the legendary Bob Farrell, uh, first technician at Merrill Lynch, yes. ran the research department. Am I am I getting his CV correct? Uh, he ran a market analysis department. It was a technical analysis department mm-hmm. at that time, and uh, I think he is the dean of technical analysis, and had a, a department of about twenty people at that time. By the way, you're not the only person who have referenced Bob Farrell as a huge influence. I could give you a list of, of a dozen people. What was it like working with uh, Bob Farrell? Well, I uh, spent a few weeks as an intern at Bob Farrell's department. Um, he um, sat me right next to Bob Prachter at the desk. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, and uh, I heard about one, two, three, four, fives, and, and ABCs and things like that. And I Elliot had no, Wave count yeah, and yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, you don't uh, strike me as an Elliot Wave technician. I, I looked at it, and I learned it, and I read the books, and uh, Bob is still um, uh, a colleague uh, of mine. Uh, I visited him a few times at his home in uh, Gainesville, uh, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, but I figured out after some years that all of a sudden you see threes and fives and ABCs everywhere and it <laughs> pollutes your mind, you know, and uh, it is there is a subjectivity uh, to, the, uh, to the theory. It can be very helpful at times, mm-hmm. but it is one of many tools. Mm-hmm. To, say, to say the least. Uh, what did you learn from working with Bob Farrell? Bob Farrell, um, he's a modest man, mm-hmm. uh, a true gentleman, and uh, a, a very good friend. And I learned from him uh, not only the modesty, uh, I learned from him how sentiment changes over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gave me a, a booklet very early, uh, The One-Way Pocket. Uh, oh, sure. That's a classic. And very I, small little very little small book. little booklet was written 100 years ago mm-hmm. in 191917 and it um, describes what happened in a Wall Street brokerage firm uh, by the action activity of the clients mm-hmm. and it shows how sentiment changes over a full cycle in the stock market from the lows the bottom to the peak and um, and and that uh, really made a big impression on me. So I started to learn that. So around uh, shortly after that time, 1973, you identified markets as having uh, been very toppy, and you shorted the market broadly. 
pretty much right before the 73-74 bear market, which was a 57% collapse in U.S. equities. What led to that decision, and, and what did you... Um, what was your thinking like back then? That was before I met Bob Farrell. Oh, really? Uh, and yes, I met an English gentleman, a good friend of mine, uh, when I worked at a brokerage firm in Paris. And uh, he showed me technical analysis, point and figures and cycles and all that stuff. And um, I did my analysis and I came to the conclusion that the market is due to top and uh, to go into a bear market. That was before the uh, first hike in oil prices, mm -hmm. the first oil crisis hit. And um, I speculated, uh, my, um, the owner of the shop uh, asked me to, um, to become a salesman at, at, in Paris. Uh, I was an intern at that time, I was 23 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, I should play with my own money. And I said, I do, but I don't have enough. Uh, so he asked, <laughs> how much do you need? And I said, uh, half a million. At that time, that was a lot of money. Sure. And uh, he gave me the half million, and uh, I started to build a short position uh, and, uh, on credit uh, margin. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I wrote, I wrote the whole market down, and I was almost killed in the bear market rally in, uh, in fall of 1973. It was brutal, from summer to fall. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, <clears throat> I, learned, uh, I learned the business the hard way, with my own money. <laughs> right. Hardly, hard way and, and painfully. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about the early days at, at UBS. You started in the mutual fund and research department. You worked your way up to global strategist over the course of five years, and then you ran the institutional portfolio department a few years after that. That's a pretty quick rise to the top of a major bank. What, what were you doing that had you stand out so much from your peers? Well, I think it was a different time than it is now. And um, uh, I was ahead of my peers because I didn't go to university. I uh, worked it up uh, the hard way. Uh, I was a speculator and a practitioner, mm -hmm. and I read probably more books than those guys uh, who went to university teaching business and learning business and uh, economics. Uh, so I was way ahead of that in terms of knowledge and practice experience uh, when I was in my uh, upper 20s. And I ran, uh, I, I ran mutual fund at UBS, uh, a U.S. equity mutual fund, by mm -hmm. the way. And I, uh, I outperformed. I did very well. Uh, I was an aggressive young man at, at that time. Then they merged research and mutual funds. And I had to be, uh, on top of being a mutual fund manager, I had to be a research analyst, uh, mm -hmm. which, I, which I hated. Really? I, I didn't like it because I'm not the stock picker and company analyst, although I, I did produce research, research reports and things like that. But I, I was in love with macro. Mm -hmm. And that is my uh, field of expertise. And that's where I feel home. And uh, so I uh, was given the position of the global strategist at an age of 30, virtually. Mm -hmm. And I was the global strategist for the whole group worldwide. Uh, when I was 30, and uh, that was way ahead of my peers uh, at that time. And, and you sort of describe this as being unburdened by a classical education as an advantage. Absolutely. I think I learned uh, the business from the practical side mm -hmm. and not from the theoretical side. I read and studied the theory 
uh, near uh, next to it, but it was not the driving force. Uh, I was a practitioner, and I wanted to learn the theories behind what makes the world moving and what mm-hmm. makes markets moving. But it was not that the theory is that the world is moving like this, and therefore stocks or bond prices have to do this or that. You know, it, I started from the other way around. So you, you didn't have any bad ideas to unlearn? That's right. You know, I have uh, uh, the best stock picker I know in, in Europe uh, with an outstanding uh, track record. He's a dentist by uh, education. <laughs> and uh, he then went into uh, consulting, business consulting, and learned all that. But he was never biased by learning the theories early on in his career. And so I think this is an advantage, or it can be an advantage. In my case, it was. You've been doing the Barron's Roundtable for 30 years, and you announced this year is going to be your last. Tell us the thinking behind that. What what led them to invite you, and why did you decide, okay, three decades is plenty? I visited Barron's in early 1986, and I did so because I was uh, asked to do so from the bank. The bank wanted to have a better saying and a better word in the world of investments. Mm-hmm. And so they sent me uh, on a mission to see uh, the media, etc. And I... Uh, in you, were, e- you were in New York at the time? I was in Switzerland at the okay. time. And I visited Barron's and I gave an interview. And the title of the interview was uh, Investor's Hell and Trader's Paradise. And uh-huh. that's what I said. It was in early 86. And I said the market would move sideways, up and down and up and down. Great for traders, but horrible for investors. And I said in that interview that the Soviet Union was bankrupt and would decay. And uh, uh, as a result of that, interest rates would decline, inflation would decline, interest rates would decline for many years to come. And uh, Alan Abelson then uh, wrote me a letter, an invitational letter, uh, to join uh, the Barons Roundtable. And that's how it happened. And then thereafter was 87, when I was running the uh, institutional portfolio management at UBS in Zurich. And I did something that uh, probably nobody ever did before or after. I went to zero equities. Wow. And we were unloading equities for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I was criticized by uh, general management for doing that. But it was because in the early 80s, uh, 82, I increased or I pushed the bank to increase equity to 65%, which at that time was unheard aggressive for a continental European bank. Used to be a 50-50 portfolio. Absolutely, absolutely. And then I wanted to cut back in in summer of 87. But by the way, in the summer of 87, the S&P 500 was up about 35% year-to-date. The Dow was up about 40%. Is that a, a fair number? Uh, I think it was not uh, from the bottom or from well, the well, from, year. Well, from year-to-date before the crash, it was mid-30s or maybe even 40% for the Dow. I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you the exact number. The, but it was way up. It, it was, was a huge it was way, it was way up, and I wanted to cut back, and uh, the investment committee followed, and uh, we decided to cut back, and then general management intervened. Uh-huh. And uh, and I uh, thought uh, they should care about their business, and we do the investment <laughs> side. And I I that's why I made an extreme example uh, statement that we go to zero. And I ordered all my portfolio managers 
to go to zero equities. Wow. Uh, but I explained them why. I ex- explained them the reason. I didn't know that the crash was coming. I uh, expected a 25% decline for the next uh, six months or so. Right. As opposed to 23% in a day and peak to trough almost four, uh, almost they, the market went just about flat on the year after uh, the crash. Is that about right? I really do not know exactly. I, I'm going to say that's ballpark. That may be. That may be. But we did very well. Uh, we, we were up a lot. The market was down a lot. And uh, unlike the U.S. market, the European markets kept going down for another month after the crash. And interestingly, in, uh, in Switzerland, uh, where you had registered shares and bearer shares, uh-huh. registered shares could not be bought by foreigners. So a clever, a smart uh, investment banker, he created warrants on registered shares. And those warrants all had a premium of up to 40% running for another year uh, to two years. And I, uh, for myself, I shorted all those warrants because at that time you could short them on f- in, in the future on margin. Uh, so uh, all those warrants were down about 80% or so. I, I had a good year. To say the least. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the great financial crisis because uh, – you, you said some really interesting things uh, both before and after, and I, I want to discuss that a little bit. Heading into the crisis, you were fairly bearish. Tell us, uh, tell us what the thought process was in the early 2000s before the financial crisis. Well, before we had uh, the Asian crisis in the 19, uh, late 1990s, right. and uh, we had um, uh, Alan Greenspan running the Fed, and I knew Alan Greenspan before he became uh, Fed chairman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an advisor to UBS at that time, and we met every three months uh, to discuss uh, world affairs. And um, his focus were not that uh, appropriate, but he is a great um, uh, historian. And I, I detected, because it was the time of the late 70s, early 80s, when we went from rising inflation to declining inflation. Mm -hmm. And I asked him lots of questions about deflationary processes. And he was very concerned about um, another traumatic 1930s. And from then on, and you can really go back into statistics, from 1987 on, that trauma sort of guided monetary policy. It was always too easy for way too long. And this led to the excesses that we have seen before. First, the Asian crisis. Then we had uh, 1998 with a big decline in the market. And then we, ha- we have L- LTCM right. and, and all that. Uh, and 97, 98, you had that's two right. big dips and then a recovery. And due to his fear, he flooded the markets. You know, right. He flooded the system and, and that created the excesses thereafter. And the excesses was, were monumental. You had uh, uh, simple telephone stocks trading at 100 times earnings right. and, and things like that. I very specifically remember, because of the Y2K fears, the Fed flooded the system with liquidity in October yes. 99. And over the next six months, the NASDAQ doubled. 100% gain in, in six months. All that traces back to uh, Easy Al. Yeah, that uh, and and that was, so you had excessive valuations, and then you had rising inflation and rising interest rates, and that broke the market. No, no doubt, the early two thousands, everything priced in dollars or credit 
spiraled out of control. That's right. And then we had that crisis, and that crisis again triggered the next stimulation, you mm-hmm. know, support of the system, the next stimulation. And then you had also uh, the um, uh, economic policy of making housing uh, available for every American, even if they cannot afford them, and, and all that. And that created the next uh, big excess, uh, which was the last cycle. Right. And in the center of that cycle was housing, uh, primarily U.S. housing, but also housing in Spain or wherever. Around in, the world. In, uh, around right. the we world. Saw a global boom and uh, and it's always uh, important to see what's the driving factor and the driving theme in a cycle is mm-hmm. so in the last cycle it was um, uh, housing real estate and in the current cycle it's china hmm. that that's fascinating now you have a reputation as a perma bear but in march of 2009 you came out and said hey we're overdue for a substantial rally 30, 40%, I believe is what you had said. And you were pretty much within days of the low, weren't you? Uh, I think it was one day uh, away from the low. Uh, and it is in print in Barron's. I said, uh, now with the next six months, we'll see 25 to 40% uh, rally. And then we'll see it could fall back once again, but I'm not sure. We have to uh, uh, assess it as 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 we see it, it's happening. So that raises the question in my mind, from whence does this reputation as a perma-bear come from? That's well, not a very bearish statement, 40% uh, up from here. Yeah, yeah, I'm, and I'm not, uh, I'm not the perma-bear, but the, the label was given to me uh, after the 87 crash because mm-hmm. I, uh, I called that downturn. And I made bearish statements. And unlike most others in the industry who are reluctant to make bearish statements, uh-huh. I call them as I see them. So whenever everybody else who might be bearish is reluctant to speak up, I do. And uh, and that uh, gave me that label, which is absolutely wrong. In the n- early 1980s, you know, I was going around as a raging bull. Mm-hmm. It was a time when you could buy a blue chip type of stocks like a Unilever, you could buy at the PE that was lower than the dividend yield. And nobody wanted to turn bullish because everybody was sitting in money market uh, that was so high returns at that time. And I was pounding the table and nobody was listening. So I do not get the reputation of a raging bull. I got the reputation of a bear because of uh, the 87 experience, I believe. Let's talk a little bit about the current environment, which seems to be giving a lot of people, especially on the hedge fund side, fits. What makes today such a different era than than what preceded? And I'm not saying it's different today. I'm saying what is what is the you mentioned earlier, every cycle has a different driving force. What's the driving force in this cycle? Well, the driving force in this cycle is China, but the cycle is um, somewhat different from uh, previous cycles because we have, uh, after uh, after 2009, we have really entered um, uh, central planning in a way because the uh, central banks have taken over to manipulate financial markets to the degree that they move prices where they want to have them. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is a new element. And that is distorting a a lot of things uh, that used to work well in previous cycles and do not work as well in the current cycle. So that's a distortion. And the question is whether this is a permanent uh, distortion uh, that will be with us forever 
mm-hmm. in the future or whether this is a temporary distortion. Uh, my uh, my uh, understanding is that it is probably a permanent distortion. So so here's the pushback to that because we've heard variations of that argument from from many quarters and the other side of the argument is hey we've always had the government sticking its fingers into markets following the great depression well it wasn't the central bank but we rolled out FDIC insurance for depositors and the new SEC was introduced you had a huge set of policies after World War II to stimulate the economy and then in the 70s we went off the gold standard so arguably the government has always been sticking its fingers where it doesn't belong that's absolutely right but uh, it sticks more and more of its fingers into where it doesn't belong and uh, this is a trend and the trend uh, is then reflected that the government share of our economies is uh, on the rise Mm -hmm. as a as a trend and the interference is on the rise and the free markets are on a decline and and this is the change i think it's a structural secular trend change that we have seen it started very slowly in 80s after 87 uh-huh. with uh, central banking becoming more biased to um, uh, asymmetric um, expansionary uh, policy and after 09 it was two more steps forward in that process and i think uh, central banks cannot go back to where it was because if they tried uh, they would break the system you knew Alan Greenspan personally. He very famously was an Ayn Rand acolyte. He believed in free markets. How is it that this free market libertarian economist put us on such a track to government management of markets? You know, it's one thing uh, to uh, commentate and, uh, in theory, uh, what should be done and what's right and what's wrong. It's another thing to be the guy who pulls the trigger makes the decision and is responsible for that decision. And as soon as you are responsible, you move more slowly, more cautiously, and you rather err on the side of making it better for the world, not worse, or less painful, not more painful. And unfortunately, that is true for the short term, but in the long run, the outcome is exactly the opposite. You make it less painful in the short run, but you make it more painful in the long run. So at the most recent Barron's Roundtable, you said, today seems a lot like late 1999. Are you implying that we're in a bubble? Are you implying we're about to enter another 10-year period of wandering in the wilderness? What does late 1999 mean in in that context? Late 99 means uh, that we are late in a cycle uh, that is going to peak, and then we have a a, uh, economic slowdown, recession, crisis, and then renewed stimulus. So we are very late in that economic cycle, and we are very late in the investment market cycle. Uh, The exact timing is very difficult to forecast. I said at the beginning of the year, The market should do very well into the summer. Uh, I expect a summer peak, then a correction into fall, and then another attempt on the upside into a peak, uh, most likely in uh, the first half of 2018. That uh, worked out well in the European markets. Uh, We had a correction in Japan, which was more sideways than uh, down. And we didn't have any correction in the U.S. market. The U.S. market just kept going. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are different ways a top could evolve. A top could be 
a long procedure of a rounding top, sure. or it could be a procedure where the leading theme stocks go into a buying climax. We do not know the outcome. Uh, if the buying climax thing develops, it will probably develop over the next few months. And in a buying climax, thematic leaders usually double in the last six months. Really? So yes. we're watching Amazon go through the roof on good it, earnings? I'm not saying it, it, it will be that that will be a spike top, but it could happen. It could be very crazy. And, uh, and uh, of course, the central bank... I believe is now very much concerned with rising inflation. As you know, the uh, New York Fed is um, is um, uh, gathering its own ways of measuring inflation, mm -hmm. and that inflation is uh, close to 3%. Uh, so the New York Fed is uh, the one uh, guiding the Fed uh, to a tighter policy. Uh, so you have, you have uh, the excesses building in the market in the late uh, stage of the cycle, and at the same time you have the central bank moving against it. Uh, so that is usually late cycle stuff. That that sounds certainly sounds familiar. Here's the pushback um, I'll, uh, you would hear from the bulls. Global economy is expanding. It's doing much better around the world. U.S. is, is 5% or less unemployment. Uh, Japan is improving. Europe seems to be getting off of the trouble we saw two, three, four years ago. Earnings are doing better around the world. And we're still very early stage of Main Street participating in the rally. They've kind of been on the sidelines for a while, and they're finally <clears throat> becoming more uh, aggressive. How do you respond to those arguments? Well, it's uh, it's absolutely right that the world economy is doing well right now. Uh, it's all driven by China. Uh, mm -hmm. I think the U.S. is the least dependent on China. Uh, it is um, it is different from the EM universe, emerging sure. markets, and Europe. They are primarily driven by China. Trade with China is uh, as important as inter-European trade. Even in Europe, that's amazing. Yeah, even I mean, in Europe. EM, we've so, known this for a long time. Yeah, but, but, Europe? but Europe is very dependent. The whole revival that you see now in Europe is driven by this... Uh, a strong economy in China. And, and, and China, I believe, is in a interesting position right now. You heard President's speech uh, sure. last week. Uh, and uh, in 2021, there is the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear that they want to have a strong economy at that time. If you want to have a strong economy in 2021, you stimulate in 2020. Right. And they are central planners, right? So they're leading so, up, up so, to that. so that means they have to uh, take the pedal off uh, the the foot off the pedal uh, in 1819, and I think 1819 they will address the uh, imbalances in the financial sector, and that will slow down the Chinese economy in uh -huh. 1819, and it will slow down also the rest of the world. So we are entering a period where sometimes in 18, I would say from um, the peak probably in the market is in the first half, the peak in the economy is probably from mid-18 on, and then we slow down into 20, okay? If, if that is correct, and 2022 is the next National Congress, and President Xi is probably the first leader who tries to run for a third time uh -huh. as president. So he wants to have a very good economy in 21, 22. That means he has to first 
slow things down, uh, uh, restructure some of the imbalances in the system, because if he tries to carry through, he could, it could backfire to him. It could be the worst of all worlds, namely a completely overheated situation with high inflation rates, etc., etc. And that's why I think the leader of this cycle, China, is going to slow down next year. So the whole global economy is dependent on President Xi's re-election desires in 2022. As I said before, uh, you always have to figure out what is the, light, uh, the, the, the leading theme in a market cycle. In the last cycle, it was real estate. In this cycle, it is China. And that's why China is so important. China is the second largest economy, and in 10, 15 years, it will be the largest economy of the world. I don't even think it's going to take 15 years. We have been speaking with Felix Zuloff of Zuloff Consulting and everywhere else that he's worked previous to that. Uh, If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras, where we continue chatting about all things macroeconomics, investing, and global economy. Uh, Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Felix, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I mentioned earlier, you and I had a conversation in 2010. I think it was over the phone. You were in Switzerland and I was in New York. You were in Zurich. And um, that conversation where we had a long, in-depth discussion about macro issues and we spoke for about an hour really the response to it and the idea that, hey, everything doesn't have to be a short soundbite. We don't need to do these five-minute segments followed by a commercial. And we don't need to ask, what's your favorite stock? When's the Fed going to raise? Where's the Dow going to be next year? Instead, get into a little more depth really was the genesis of this show. So I, I have you to thank for this. this. This, as I'm fond of saying, is the most fun I have all week. That's very flattering. Thank you very much. <laughs> so so we were talking um, during the break before about um, some of the challenges during um, 97 and 98. Is is this year look like 99? Is it 96? You said this kind of looked like 98 in, in some ways. Explain that. Well, in 98, uh, we had in 97, we had the, the Asian crisis. Uh, uh, China uh, had uh, devalued in 94. It's currency by 50%. Wow. Uh, 50%, not 15, 5-0. Five five zero. Zero. That's five good zero. for exports, isn't it? And, uh, and uh, that, got, that got a tremendous kick into China, but it hurt all the Asian economies. Including you know, Thailand. Including Thailand, Malaysia, etc. And uh, then we had the Asian crisis. And the Asian crisis was, uh, for many, a shock. And uh, central banks um, opened up the floodgates. And then we had markets going higher again. And then we had 98, we had uh, LTCM. And that was a big decline, uh, and we had a huge move in the currency markets. The whole world was short the yen, 
Uh, I think Julian Robertson at that time, uh, um, that that was a big problem for him. Mm -hmm. And I talked to him about two weeks before it happened because I was on the other side of the trade. You were long yen, short dollars. I was long yen, short dollars because I expected uh, another hit. And uh, and I did it through options. And uh, how did that and, trade work out? And I think we, I think dollar yen went in um, in two weeks time from one forty five or so to one oh eight or something wow. like that. A huge move, thirty forty percent move in in currency. And in, uh, that yeah. usually takes years to do. Absolutely. Uh, so we had a great year. We had uh, we were up uh, over forty percent that uh -huh. year. So that that was the currency trade that made it for us. I always traded currencies. I always traded commodities. I always traded fixed income, and and stocks and equities. So I, I was pretty much across the board. I, I was really at home in all the uh, different asset classes. Uh, well, that makes sense because you're a top-down macro guy. One of the things we didn't get to earlier that I have to ask you about is the global geopolitical situation. We have the rise of, of popularism around the world, uh, Catalonian independence. I was just in Barcelona. It was mm -hmm. madness. Yeah. Um, Brexit and then Trump in the U.S. Are there similar forces driving all these things, or are they wholly unrelated? And, and what does it mean to investors? No, I think they are all related in uh, to to some degree and in some way. And I think it's the um, uh, backfiring of uh, too much globalization or mm -hmm. an extreme globalization. Globalization in theory is wonderful because uh, everybody who can produce something cheaper or better than anybody else does that and focuses on that. And then you trade, and that is uh, beneficial to all the consumers. So in theory, that's fine, but they are losers also. Sure. And when you look at the income statistics, um, uh, we have built a new middle class in terms of a big push higher in real income in uh, Asia and the emerging economies over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, where the real income has declined or eroded in the industrialized uh, economies, middle class. And that has been uh, the reason behind uh, Brexit and uh, Trump uh, and rising populism. They are the losers and they want to change. They are losers or they fear to become losers. Mm -hmm. And they so, so anyone working in a factory in the U.S. that have seen those, whether it's textiles or electronics or automobiles, a lot of those jobs have gone overseas. That's right. And they haven't been able to find something to replace that. Yes. Uh, this is the same thing in Europe. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the big beneficiaries were the platform companies, uh, those who have their uh, taxes paid in places where the tax rate is very low, sure. those who have production where labor cost is very low, and they sell their products worldwide. Mm -hmm. uh, those have the big winners and the shareholders of those companies. And, and I think that is backfiring. It's changing uh, the political landscape. Uh, because people are dissatisfied with their governments because uh, uh, it's sort like they are working primarily for themselves and the big companies, the establishment, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So there is a big push against the establishment. It's in Europe, and you see it also in the U.S. So, so let me, let's drill down on that a little bit. When, when you look at Brexit, uh, it's hard to see how Brexit benefits just about anybody in, in in the UK. Certainly it hurts London. We're seeing lots of jobs. I think UBS just announced they're moving a bunch of uh, uh, jobs to Switzerland and Germany away from London. 
But what does Brexit do for the rest of the Brits? And I guess you could ask the same question. What does Trumpism do for the people who who either are working in, in industries like coal or textiles that have either left or are on the downslide? Uh, are these people have any realistic hope that their votes are going to positively affect their lives? Or are they just, hey, the current situation isn't working. We want to try something different. In Europe, you have that situation where you have the European Union, and the European Union is a good idea, or was a good idea originally, but the introduction of the euro made it uh, an idea that moves towards centralization uh-huh. and move towards centralization. When you link currencies together of economies that are structurally completely different and different in terms of uh, competence, etc. Et you, you shouldn't you, have the Greeks borrowing at the same rate yes, as the Germans. You create, you create imbalances. You create imbalances, and the imbalances have to be rebalanced by transfer payments. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, by definition, means more socialism, more redistribution, and that makes an economy uh, less competitive in less the long efficient. term, and the productivity and prosperity goes down. So it's a bad idea. And uh, one of the cornerstones of uh, the European Union and the free market is a free movement of people. Sure. And that free movement of people in an in a area where you have completely uh, huge differences in income and huge differences in wealth and huge differences in uh, social security standards and social welfare, etc., creates migration movements. And uh, you you get people moving from the poor places to the richer places. And so the UK got a lot of inflow from Eastern Europe. Uh-huh. And, uh, and uh, the Brits, the people, were afraid to lose their jobs uh, to those people uh, because they were uh, working for less money. Right. And, uh, and they feared they could lose their jobs, and that's why they voted for Brexit. Actually, the UK leader, Cameron, was uh, meeting with Brussels and uh, Berlin before the Brexit um, uh, vote and said, give us um, uh, uh, a good point that we can open up a little bit or close the doors to some degree that we can have better control on migration. And they denied it, although migration in total in the EU is not a big problem. Uh And they are very dogmatic, and that created Brexit. Can can the Brits turn around and say, you could come here, but you don't qualify for Social Security or health care or whatever until after X years? That was the idea, but that was not tolerated by the EU. Ah. And, And that's why we have this situation. I think if the Brits are smart... And right now they are in political disarray. Uh, uh, But if they were smart, they could decide what sort of policy serves their own country best and do exactly that and position them to attract businesses. And uh, and that would be very beneficial. Uh, at the present time, uh, Theresa May is uh, has lost her compass completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, she will probably be a transition uh, figure, and you need a new government, uh, a new leader, uh, to to make Brexit work for the UK. M- makes sense. Over the past few months, I've been in half a dozen European cities, and in, in France, and Spain, and. And Italy and everybody wants to talk about Trump. The Europeans are fascinated. 
sort of with a bemused, oh, you silly Americans type of questioning. So what's <laughs> happening in the States? What do you think of Trump? What do you think of what's going to happen with Trump in China? What's going to happen with Trump in Korea? We get these questions where uh, they're, they're sort of like amused that this is not the usual situation, but there's an undercurrent of this is potentially very disruptive and very serious. So let me put the question to you. What's the European view of what's happened in America, and how do you think this plays out? Well, I differ from most of uh, the Europeans. Uh, you know, they look at it and uh, and find it ridiculous what's going on in in the U.S. and say, "Oh, those silly Americans, etc." You, you you know that. Uh, I I think Trump uh, went through the primaries and he beat fifteen members of the Republican establishment. And he was the only candidate who read the zeitgeist right, uh -huh. you see. And uh, whether he uh, has the character, the character and the personality to lead the U.S. as a president is another question. But he was elected for reasons to change policies. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think uh, since Bannon has left, which was his ideological compass in a uh -huh. way, I think uh, it looks to me like uh, the establishment has taken over uh, at the White House. Regained control. Regained control. And I think this is not for good because this means Trump will not be able to deliver what he promised. And, and, and only a very small fraction, if at all. That means... All the voters who voted for Trump will get disappointed. And uh -huh. I think the next U.S. president will come from a political uh, side that is left of Bernie Sanders. Really? Absolutely. Who, I think, who's left of Bernie Sanders? Yeah, I don't, I don't know the name yet. But <laughs> I, I think, you know, uh, a lot of Democrats, the losers of globalization, voted for Trump. That makes sense. And um, and uh, I think they will be very disappointed and they will next time go with a socialist who promises them a better life. And uh, and and guaranteed health care, guaranteed yeah. education, and and so we have we have uh, rising socialism. Uh, not just in the U.S., we have it in Europe as well. We have rising socialism. We also have uh, rising nationalism mm -hmm. because of geo uh, of of globalization that has gone too far and created too many losers. Uh -huh. uh, we have rising nationalism. And Is it, isn't it kind of black and white? There, like you can't be a little pregnant. You can't be a little globalized. Either there's free trade and globalization or not. How do you have less globalization? Either you have tariffs and, and restriction on trade or it's open, or am I oversimplifying that? You know, uh, uh, China entered um, uh, the World Trade Organization in 2002, and they cheated every year. Right. Uh, they stole uh, technologies. Uh, they copied patents, etc. They're nobody, notorious for that. Nobody ever intervened. Nobody ever sanctioned them. If they had played um, uh, again, um, according to the rules, there would have been a different outcome. Huh. It would have been a slower development process in sure. China, and the globalization uh, problems, so to speak, would have been much smaller. But nobody sanctioned them. And, um, and, and I think that's the problem. You have a system in China, a central planning system, that were run uh, in the last 20 years for employment, not for profits. Whereas 
in the World Trade Organization, uh, it really states that an economy should be run for corporate profits. You know, those are two ideologies that do not fit together mm -hmm. in World Trade Organization. So that creates the problems. But uh, coming to geopolitics on that side, it's very important that if the world economy cannot grow enough over the next 10 years, and I think this is a fair assumption given the demographics we have, if you look at the uh, the age class of um, up to 65 years. Uh -huh. um, per year in the OECD, China, Brazil, and Russia, in, the, uh, in, that, in that area, we had since the 1950s, every year 25 to 30 million more people. Mm -hmm. Tremendous growth. In 2008, we had 14 people only. New growth. Uh -huh. uh, today we have uh, 1.7 wow. for for uh, 2017. Next year it's zero. Uh, thereafter, until 2035, the number declines to a negative 12 million. So you have a negative growth rate. Productivity growth has peaked and is declining. Right. And and if you combine population growth and productivity growth, you know the outcome will be very low economic growth. And that creates a fight for a more share of the pie that doesn't grow enough. And that creates competition. It creates protectionism. It creates conflicts. And you have a situation where the uh, hegemon, the world hegemon, the U.S., is being challenged by a, a new uh, power, China. And for the first time, a Chinese president uh, said it very bluntly, we want to be number one. In 10, 15 years, we want to be number one. We want to close the gap uh, uh, of the leading corporations to the Western world uh, and then surpass them. Uh, we want to be a major military power and we want to make an influence on the world. Uh, this is quite a challenge. And when you look at history, you can go back. Uh, the last time we had such a situation was about um, a good hundred years ago in the late 19th century, early 20th century, when uh, the leading hegemon was Great Britain mm -hmm. and to some degree France, and, uh, and Germany came up. And they challenged them, and that led to conflicts. And I think we are in for um, rising conflicts uh, in the world uh, over the next 10 to 20 years. So that's, that's an interesting structural framework for the next question, which is the U.S. and China are such big trading partners. We're so reliant on them as a manufacturer. They're reliant on us as a consumer market. And we're separated, unlike Germany, France, and, and England, we're separated by the Pacific Ocean and thousands of miles. Can we avoid the problems of the 20th century uh, with the two great powers in the 21st century? Or is the same old routine going to play out and it ultimately leads to a very costly and damaging war? Uh, the hope is that it does not, uh, of course, uh, but the risk is that it does. And, uh, you know, uh, the time period I described in the late 19th century and early 20th century was very similar to today. We uh -huh. had globalization at that time. 
we had free capital uh, movement uh, at that time. So we had no capital controls, nothing, which came later uh, during the wars and after the war uh, we had capital controls. You also had rising nationalism. We we had rising nationalism. We had migration, huge migration waves. There was a big wave coming to the U.S. at that time. Uh, And you had terrorism. (coughs) And you had terrorism at that time against the establishment because... The whole situation produced losers, and the losers were fighting against the establishment, and that's why you had terrorism. So we, there we are, had, I think, we just had the hundredth anniversary of the bombing down on Wall Street. There's still, you could still see um, damage on the buildings from where someone brought up a horse-drawn carriage and and blew okay. it up. You see, uh, that's a century ago, you, right you about see? when you were talking, you 19. 19- 17, I think. So so it, it's not the same, but there are similarities. And there is, uh, you know, in the world, uh, people act as they act. And, uh, and people vote. And uh, to avoid conflict, you need two leaders who understand all that and want to work it out in a peaceful way. I don't see that situation uh, with the current leaders uh, playing out in a peaceful way. Huh, it's interesting. So I'm trying to think of who is left of Bernie Sanders and yet <laughs> is is articulate and rational enough and intelligent enough to negotiate some sort of deal with China that everybody can live happily ever after. You know, protectionism and nationalism is not here since Trump. It has been there before, mm-hmm. but the election of Trump made it bring up to the surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the next uh, president, whoever uh, he or she will be, will continue on that policy line of protectionism and nationalism. I'm pretty sure about that. Wow. I, I wanted to ask you about um, what's going on in, in the world of hedge funds. Before I get to my favorite question, let, let, me, let me ask you this. So you ran a hedge fund for 20 years or so quite successfully, um, and your performance numbers speak for themselves. The past 10, 15 years, we've seen hedge funds really underperform, and not just a little, substantially, 500, 1,000 basis points on average versus the S&P 500. Why is the modern hedge fund community having such, and there are obvious exceptions. We could talk about DE Shaw or Renaissance Technologies or whoever, but by and large, 90% of the hedge fund community ain't doing so great. They're, they're about $3 trillion, so it's a substantial amount of money. What do you see in this environment that's throwing uh, such a, a monkey wrench into, into hedge funds? Well, a hedge fund, by definition, hedges uh, part of uh, its bets and, uh, and usually underperforms in a bull market and uh, makes money in a bear market, and that adds up to a great long-term performance. Uh, uh, this bull market has been going on longer than uh, usual, so it's one of the longest uh, bull markets in history. And uh, I think uh, most of us uh, did not understand to what degree and for how long the central banks would intervene to the degree they did. And I think that created a big problem for the hedges. Uh, 
uh-huh. uh, because they had hedged bets out there when you should have been uh, full time leverage or leverage long. long. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I think that's the that's the first problem. The second problem is that um, you have a situation where long only investors and not so sophisticated long only investors. So the average guy from the street. He buys his stocks and he has great performance because it's just very, it's just doing very, very well. Why do you need hedge funds for? Because you can do it yourself, or the central bank is doing it for you, mm-hmm. uh, and and therefore the attractiveness of hedge funds has declined. Uh, I think if we go back to a more um, uh, cyclical environment uh, where you have a down cycle, then the hedge funds will come back. Uh, some will come back. And, and some will not, because in the last cycle, you saw that a lot of the hedge funds that used to be hedge funds, as the word implies, right. were long only. And they had a few hedges on just to charge the higher fees, but they were leveraged long only, basically. And they got wiped and out. And they the got crash. wiped out. You know. So so you mentioned mom and pop or, or the mainstream investor being long only. They they very much gravitated towards an indexing approach, mm-hmm. be it ETFs at BlackRock mm-hmm. or mutual funds at, at Vanguard. Um, what does indexing do to price discovery? Some people are calling it distortive of the market. Uh, what do you think about the trend? Yeah, I mean, it's been 40 years in the making, but it's really since the financial crisis mm-hmm. that a lot of people have moved into indexing. Yeah. What what does this do to price discovery? What what do you think the impact on investing is? Well, it makes uh, it makes actually markets uh, less efficient, uh, and uh, it should create opportunities uh, for stock pickers over the long term. But uh, it may take much longer until the discrepancies uh, are discovered by the market because of indexing that is growing its share of the market in general. Uh, So as long as this trend uh, towards passive investment continues, it's very difficult for um, uh, talented stock pickers to create the extra returns because the value on their investments is there, but the market does not discover it until the passive investment fad is gone or is being reduced. Do, do you think that this is a fad that's going to go away, or is this a secular change? Well, if it's a secular change, then it would have to do with um, a central planning type of uh, central banking uh, for the long term. Uh, that would lead to uh, an environment of uh, ever-inflated asset prices. Uh, it would lead to uh, much higher inflation over time, and it leads to a much less efficient economy and um, and a less productive economy and a less prosperous economy. I hope that it does not. My fear is that it will. Uh, so in the next downturn, the next recession, next crisis, you will probably see that governments uh, all over the world will launch huge fiscal programs to support the system. Fiscal programs. Fiscal programs. Are we at the end and, of... And then the central banks underwriting it. So here's the, the question. With rates as low as they are, even though we've had a few increases, they're still historically very low. Do central banks have any room to run monetary policy, or is the next cycle them just giving the green light to to governments on the Keynesian fiscal side? Go spend more, go do infrastructure, stimulate the economy. That way, we've done as much as we can with low rates and, and QE. 
before the cycle, I thought zero was the bottom. Uh, uh, now I know that zero interest rate is not the bottom. Right. Uh, I think next time it will be huge fiscal spending, huge fiscal spending, infrastructure spending to just employ the people and uh, keep the system afloat and it will be underwritten by central banks. Who else could do it? Right. You know, central banks will do it. And that leads to um, uh, a situation that I, do, uh, that I dislike uh, uh, as, a, as a citizen uh, of this world. I dislike because it leads to much more central planning, uh, higher government shares uh, in our economies, less prosperity, less freedom for individuals eventually. You know. So so that's a good point where we're going to move on to our standard questions. These are um, the favorite questions we ask all of our guests. Um, tell me something that most people don't know about your background. Well, I just said I uh, the uh, only times I went to university was as a speaker, uh -huh. uh, uh, never <laughs> as a student. Um, uh, the other thing, I'm a happy family father, mm -hmm. uh, very modest uh, person. Uh, and I'm a very happy and optimistic person. Uh, which is uh, not which your which public not, persona. <laughs> yes, I know. I did not know you did not go to university. I uh, certainly never would have guessed that. I bet a lot of people are unaware of that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Bob Farrell as an early mentor. Who else was a, a mentor of yours? Uh, Rico Clerici was uh, my boss uh, at UBS. I learned a lot uh, from him. Uh, he is a, a cycle guy, and uh, mm -hmm. he introduced me to uh, deeper into the business cycles and the long waves and, and all that stuff. Uh, and he's a good friend uh, uh, nowadays. Uh, not as close to the markets that uh, as I am, uh, but uh, uh, he was a great uh, man in my career. He always he also taught me. To write, mm -hmm. you know, when I had to write um, the investment strategy for the bank, um, uh, it was always very tough for me at that time, younger years. And then I handed it in to him, and he came back all red, you know. And it was Marked so up. frustrating. But over time, I learned, and he was a great teacher. So you went to university with him, in other words, uh, with, with many people. Uh, I I always say I went to the University of Life. Well, that's a fair statement. Um, what investors influenced your approach to looking at, at markets? Who, who do you think changed the way you, you view the investing world? I really didn't change. I always have been a macro guy. Uh, in uh, my younger years, uh, George Soros was sure. um, uh, um, uh, inspirational in, in that sense. Uh, I uh, later thought that Stanley Druckenmiller, who is a few years younger than I am, uh, probably played the macro uh, side the best. Uh -huh. uh, I know. Uh, I think he is uh, a great, great guy. Uh, so uh, uh, those were the people uh, that were uh, influential. That that's a pretty good list, uh, Soros and Druckenmiller, to to say the least. Um, your favorite books. Tell us some of your uh, favorite books, be they fiction or nonfiction, investing or or anything. I like uh, bi biographies. Uh -huh. um, a book that uh, every serious student of the market should have read is uh, One Way Pockets, uh, we talked about sure. earlier. Um, I loved uh, those uh, market visit books. Jack Schwager, yeah, yes, absolutely. Uh, I loved those. Um, I also loved uh, Barton Beek's um, um, Hedge, um, hedge hogging. Hedge hogging, yeah, that was a, that was a great and entertaining book. You, mm -hmm. you learned a lot. 
Um, those were all the, those are the type of books that I like. And then uh, uh, history, uh, economic history, uh, lots of finance, things like that. Uh, Lords of Finance was wonderful. Uh, what biographies have you read recently? I have a stack of biographies waiting for me at home that I, I'm looking forward to getting to. The recent book I read, uh, biography, was um, the former chairman of UBS, uh, whom I uh, knew very well, um, uh, Holzach, uh, Mr. Holzach, uh-huh. uh, Robert Holzach. He was really the brain and driver behind making UBS great before the youngsters took over and run in run it against the wall you know uh-huh. and he always he always warned uh, against uh, those um, uh, fascinating investment bankers who always overdo it he always warned uh, against that he praised me in uh, the UBS uh, uh, journal internal journal after the crash of 87, he was the only one who praised me. Uh-huh. And I quit after that because I knew my career was over. <laughs> <laughs> um, any other biographies? I, You know, it's it's my one of my favorite nonfiction areas to read. Yesterday in the office, the person who wrote the Steve Jobs book, I'm forgetting his name, Walter somebody, Walter Isaacson, uh-huh. his new biography of Leonardo da Vinci just arrived Leonardo oh. Oh. so that's on my list give me one more biography that you've enjoyed uh it's uh, quite some time since I read the last ones Winston Churchill I uh, I read uh, and, and that's about everybody it. loves the the big Churchill biography let let's talk about what has changed uh in the industry what do you think is the most significant change in finance and investing and how has it impacted managing money the biggest change is the uh, <clears throat> intervention by uh, the central banks and the compliance mm-hmm. uh, I recently um, uh, had lunch with a friend of mine who was the founder of a listed uh, private bank in uh, Switzerland uh, they operate internationally and he said to me look I'm the only entrepreneurial guy at the bank left because everybody else is driven by compliance. Uh And I think in investing, it's the same thing. So we have lost, in a way, the entrepreneurial spirit in the field of investment because the central banking intervention just kills it. Huh. That's that's quite fascinating. Uh, What's the next major shift? If if central bank intervention and and overregulation and compliance is what led us to today. Where do you think things change in the future? Uh, I think that uh, uh, the fixed income market will suffer badly uh, because um, the, the, the way we run our economic policies uh, will eventually destroy the fixed income market. So you're not just saying this as a market call. You're saying structurally, structurally. we're creating problems for bonds. Structurally. Yes. Uh, is that corporate bonds, treasuries, or across the board? It's it's basically across the board because eventually those bonds will end up uh, on the go- government bonds will end up on the balance sheet of central banks. Uh-huh. You know, uh, the Bank of Japan already owns uh, more than half of uh, the JGBs. Uh, they own already about fifteen percent of the outstanding equities uh, uh-huh. of the market. Um, the Swiss National Bank is uh, probably uh, one of the biggest individual shareholders of all all the large U.S. stocks, uh, corporations, mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. That is new. 
that is new, and I think it's here to stay. And that is, you're saying it's not very healthy. No, it's not. It's uh, it's uh, it's destroying free markets, and it's de- it's destroying entrepreneurship in to some degree. So let me shift gears on you a little bit. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from that experience. Um, <clears throat> I missed the rise of the Japanese stock market after the crash of 87 to new highs. Uh-huh. Uh, it was the only stock market that went to new highs into late 89. And that was the peak, and, right? Uh, and it was painful for me because I was underweight Japan. Uh-huh. And uh, everybody was jumping on uh, my back all the time. It was very painful, and I refused to join in, which probably was a mistake. I suffered badly. Uh, I had uh, enough um, um, uh, extra returns before from the crash, but it was uh, painful. And I uh, uh, went back to my analysis, and, uh, and I came to the conclusion that uh, Japan would about peak and go down and virtually on the first day of trading in 1990 January 2nd I think it was in 1990 I um, I put out uh, my big shorts uh, in the Japanese stock market and I wrote it down uh, for I think it was about 12 months or so uh-huh. it, 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 cra- it it went uh, 46,000 down, down it, to it, it, it went down 50% yeah. uh, within 6 months uh, and uh, and I made a lot of money and and all my friends who have been uh, Japan bulls uh, before always ridiculed me on the way up and uh, on the way down they were angry because they lost more than I uh, in in that year than what they have made before and I made more than I have not made before. So how bad so, how bad of a miss was it missing the last year or two of, of the Japanese? It run? was men- mentally, it was psychologically, it was very bad. Really? And, uh, and it uh, and it uh, really helped me to tighten my risk management procedures uh-huh. uh, because when you are wrong in the market, uh, you increase the risk of making wrong decisions and mistakes. But so, you weren't short. During that run-up, no, I you was were just not, underweight. But, I, but underweight, and that's a mistake, uh, and uh, and and it hurts. But it's a relatively mild mistake versus being long into the collapse. Okay, I give you another. I give you another <laughs> mistake I made uh, um, in 1980 when gold and silver peaked. Uh, silver uh-huh. peaked at fifty at fifty dollars, and uh, um, I I was aware that it peaked. And I had sold out before uh, or at near the peak. And then it went down to $35, from 50 to 35 silver. And then I thought it is now going to bounce to 45. So uh-huh. I wanted to be smart. And I bought silver from for a trade from 35 to 45. And instead of going to 45, it just continued to go down. Right. And I think at 18... I sold out with a 50% loss and I turned the monitors up. I couldn't see it anymore. You know, I felt sick. And then I went back uh, to the drawing board and doing my analysis and I came to the conclusion, this thing goes down to 10. And, uh, and I wait and when we are in the range of 10, around 10, I buy again and I buy three times more than what I uh, owned before. And I did that about six months later. Uh, we were there, and I bought uh, that much, and I, I thought, 
we could have a rally for maybe six or nine months uh, back uh, to double, basically. Right. And it did double. And I was in San Francisco when Silver hit, uh, I saw the headline in the Wall Street Journal, Silver hits 24. And uh, I stayed up late at night in San Francisco to call my office in Zurich that, that, that sell. morning, sell. Yeah. So I finally came out with a profit, but it was a long suffering. Really, really, painful, uh, <laughs> really painful experience, it sounds like. So outside of the office, what do you do to relax? What do you do to stay mentally sharp? Um, I read a lot. Uh-huh. I, I love reading. Uh, I uh, uh, talk to uh, friends. Uh, to uh, uh, Actually, I talk to many people. I like uh, communication. Uh, I do some sports. Uh, in winter, I ski. Uh, in summer, I play golf. Uh, I go to the gym. Um, not too often, once a week or so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't do enough sports. Uh, I, I walk. I bike. Uh, I love outdoors, and uh, I do that particularly uh, where the ground is flat, like in Florida or an island. Uh, I have a domicile in the North Sea. So wait, you have you have a home in in Geneva or Zurich? In uh, in Zug, in Zug. Zug, which is a suburb of Zurich. All right, basically. and then where in the North Sea? Uh, it's the most German island uh, off uh, the Danish coast, uh, called Sylt. Uh, it's a very German, very German island, but I love the climate. I love um, the calmness uh, there. I love the nature. Um, there are four golf courses. Uh, you can bike. Uh, you can walk. You can enjoy uh, the beach. There is a 30-mile uh, beach you can walk. Can uh, you swim like there or is you it can too cold? Swim. Yeah, it's cold, but I grew up um, at the River Rhine that is always cold. Right. So I'm used to that. That's and, no problem. And where in Florida do you spend time? I uh, have a domicile, a vacation domicile in uh, in Naples. Uh, oh, so, it's lovely. Uh, I, I love it. But now we go down uh, uh, this weekend and uh, uh, to look how it looks like. I think the landscape is pretty much damaged. Right. You, well, it's it, this is still we're still in the last few weeks of uh, hurricane season. So yeah, I my golf clubs uh, down there told me that they lost uh, half the trees. Wow, that that's amazing. So. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate or a millennial who came to you and said, I'm interested in a career uh, in asset management? What would you say to them? Study history. Mm-hmm. Uh, study uh, uh, financial history also on top of history. Um, uh, look at uh, the long-term trends. Uh, try to understand what zeitgeist and changes in the zeitgeist uh, mean uh, for financial markets. Uh, and after having read and studied all that, you go to the details that you need in your day-to-day business. Uh, you, you know, you, uh, you learn uh, um, uh, analyzing a company, you learn analyzing an economy, uh, you look at uh, the main factors that are driving a cycle and uh, learn how the cycle works. In uni- at university, they do not teach you how a business cycle works anymore. Uh, it's basically mathematics, uh, calculations, uh, but they do not tell you how people interaction work in the economy and in the markets. And our final question, what is it you know today about investing that you wish you knew 30, 40 years ago when you first started your career as an asset manager? Quite frankly, I'm glad I didn't know what I know today because I would not have been as aggressive then 
the, uh-huh. as I have been. You know, uh, if I knew all the risks that I know today, I would not have done as well as I have done. So, so uh, a, a few good words about blind optimism and youth. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I think money management is a business for optimists uh, uh, because uh, our system, it's a fiat currency-based system. It's asymmetric towards um, a rising monetary inflation, and that is uh, towards uh, rising asset prices. And therefore, um, a good um, a portion of optimism Uh, never hurts. Thank you, Felix. This has been absolutely fascinating. We have been speaking with Felix Zuloff of Zuloff Consulting, formerly Zuloff Asset Management, Union Bank of Switzerland, UBS, etc. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Bloomberg.com, Overcast, wherever fine podcasts are sold, and you can see Uh, the other 160 or so such conversations we've had previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff we have here at Bloomberg who help us put together these wonderful conversations each week. Medina Parwana is my producer and audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our producer and booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.